Well, another election come and gone. Full of disappointments, full of encouragements, full of ways to get really, really mad, full of ways to get really, really sad, full of ways to become fearful, full of ways just to act like we're not a believer. Don't you feel those? Don't you feel those every time? Let me just confess in front of you, and if it fits, put the shoe on. How many times I've started the conversation with my wife, I just can't believe that, and fill in the blank. What do they expect us to believe when they keep counting votes until the other guy wins? Do you know that those are responses from your pastor of unbelief? Because was God in charge of that? Is God in charge of that? Is God in charge of the counting of the, the last 21 or seats or however many are left in the house? We are a people who is equipped to live in the Babylon that the United States is today. We may have been fooled. We may have been fooled that, oh, now Roe v. Wade is overturned. Everything will get better. And yet that overturning empowered the unrighteous to vote for the most unrighteous of acts in droves. Is God in charge of that? He is. So we have... Not just this week, not just after last week's election, but every day of every week, the opportunity of whether we are going to be those who stand on the edge of the darkness and scream at it or stand on the edge of the darkness and preach at it. We have a decision to make. Now, we may have to scream when we preach, but scream, but preach nonetheless. And sometimes the place to start is right within the house of God that we repent for the past times that we have, even if we've said on the outside, I don't trust in the government, we've acted as if we've trusted in the government. I don't trust in the state, but we've acted as if we trust in the state. So maybe it's time to repent and then to go back to the battlefront with our lights not under a bushel anymore and preach. And part of the way we do that is how we live every life. Every day, every day in our life. That's part of the way we do that. What will be our choices? Will our choices be obey the word of God and be involved in the kingdom that he is building and him using us to build that kingdom? Or is it going to be to be neutered because we're upset or mad or fearful or distrustful? I can remember when we had all of the Y2K stuff many years ago. We had a couple in our church that was buying land because if Y2K went a certain way and the Hanging Chad election went a certain way, they were going out into that land and hibernating and never coming out because they were fearful. Might we live that way today? Now, if you have a piece of land that you go home to every day, I'm not talking about you shouldn't have that piece of land. But I am talking about what does that piece of land and your life on it do? when it comes to obeying God and advancing the kingdom because he never stops advancing. He may have taken these elections in a direction that surprise us, but we don't say he's not in control or things would have been different if, or what if we would have canvassed better or they would have canvassed worse or, or what if there weren't cheating or what if there was cheating? We, we don't need to worry about any of that. 
We get up knowing that God is sovereign, has not left his rule on the side of the road. In fact, he is advancing his kingdom, even if we look more like Babylon today. And when we're living in Babylon, we're living with our hearts and minds toward the king, toward the land that he's called us to, toward the the new heaven and new earth. That's the promise of our land. Face to face with our Lord, no sin, no suffering, no dying. And if that's where we're going, then this life is the way we start practicing that. And Isaiah wants us to know that. And as if he knew that we'd be living in this year, back when he's back writing in the 8th century B.C., as if he knew, I'm going to write this for those Americans that live in that midterm election because they're going to need it. And sometimes God is gracious to us and he reveals it so starkly that it brings us to our knees that the scripture that he gives is applicable to us every single day, all of it. Well, Isaiah is speaking, and he's speaking to a nation about other nations. And his overarching message is always, don't put your trust in them. Because in his day, the leaders are tempted to put their trust in other nations instead of Yahweh. And therefore, the people that they lead are putting their trust in the same way because they're following their leader. And so he is on this journey to take us to all these different nations around Judah and to show they're all under the sovereign hand of God. And unless they turn to him, they will be destroyed. That's the message. From chapters 13 all the way through to the 10th oracle, that's the message. And he gives it in so many different ways that he lays us bare of all the different ways that we can trust in something other than God. So this morning we hear the same message, but we hear it in a different way. And it's so applicable. It's more applicable today than it would have been last Sunday for us. Isaiah chapter 21, if you'll stand while I read. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, It comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, Elam, lay siege, O media. All the signs she has caused, I bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat the drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shields. For thus... The Lord said to me, go, set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, fallen, fallen is Babylon and all the carved images of her gods. He has shattered to the ground. Oh, my threshed ones and winnowed ones. What I have heard from Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. 
the oracle concerning Duma. One is calling for me from Seir. Watchmen, what time for the night? Watchmen, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of Dedanites. To the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bows, and from the press of battle. For, thus says the Lord, thus the Lord said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For Yahweh, the God of Israel, has spoken. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So this morning we're doing something a little different than we have in the past. We're covering three oracles, not just because they're in one chapter, but because they seem to be tied together with threads, that they all three of these hang together, not as one unit. They're definitely three different oracles, but we're looking at them all together today, and we'll see how they hang together and how they um, inform us today and give us encouragement in living in the land that we live. The first thing that we see is the oracle concerning Babylon. The first part of that oracle, judgment is announced. Look at verse 1. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. Now that strikes us as different, doesn't it? It's, we've got, we have these ten oracles in a row, and starting with this one, the second five, there's a little bit of a shift in most of them. Not all of them, but in most of them. The titles of the countries that he's talking about are a little bit more enigmatic. They're a little bit hidden. They're, they're a little bit metaphoric. And I think part of that reason is is because Isaiah's vision is being um, widened here. Yes, we have certain things going on in Isaiah's time. Yes, we have certain things going on in the near future. But we also are looking all the way through what God's activities are throughout history. And I'll explain why I think that is as we go through the text. But this is why I think we have more of a hidden kind of title. Instead of Babylon, which it's clear, this, this oracle, it's clear to me anyway, that this oracle is about Babylon when we see the, the message that the, that the sentry hears, the watchman hears about fallen, fallen is Babylon. So why does it start out with an oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea? Now, some people, there's a lot of disagreement about what exactly is going on and what time frame in history this is talking about. Do we even know what time frame? Some of the oracles, we can make educated guesses that that oracle is speaking of a certain time frame. Other times, we're not sure. But the reality is, is the message is the same. Don't trust in foreign nations. God is sovereign, and he's going to punish sin and reward those who come to him. And it's being shown over and over in different ways. So even if we disagree on the specifics about what event might be talked about or how wide or far-reaching the event is, the purpose of of this oracle remains the same for us. So wilderness of the sea. If we take Babylon as being um, 
the, the, the nation that's in, in view here. And I'm not going to go through all the different ways that people argue for different things. I don't think that's helpful for us. But if we say that this is Babylon, where Babylon sits, the wilderness of the sea, or maybe your translation says the desert of the sea, the, I think it has two possible ways that we understand this. Where the city of Babylon sat between the Tigris and the Euphrates River would have been a muddy, marshy um, forest of water and sand and mud. And, that, and it could be referring to that, their physical location. But if it is, I think it also has a spiritual overtone, the same way as we'll see in, in um, other oracles, like when we get to Duma for Edom in a moment, or we get to the Valley of Vision for Judah next week. There are all, there are, the wording is being chosen to convey other things. So if you think of your biblical theology, wilderness is the place that trials are happening. Wilderness is the place where people are brought because they're, they're being tried, they're being tested. And the sea in scripture oftentimes is referring to that, that chaotic, uncontrollable by man forces of evil, but yet God is the only one who controls the sea. So if we take that biblical theology, we might be saying for Babylon that this is a time of testing, and even though this looks like chaos to you, O Judah, God is sovereign over this, just like he is the only one that's sovereign over the mysteries and the, the fear that is in the sea. So the wilderness, an oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, and he begins to talk about this. As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, so the Negev is that desert region in the south, Okay, so it is very deserty, very dry. As whirlwinds sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a terrible land. This is a strong statement here. It, this, this judgment comes as whirlwinds. If you've ever seen pictures of a sandstorm coming up in the desert where there is no wind and all of a sudden the wind is upon them, it is sudden, but it is vicious. It is a ferocious thing. And that's what's being pictured here, that this is a, it comes from the wilderness like whirlwinds from a terrible land. And it's, it is coming. It's not up for judgment here. Isaiah sees it in his vision. Here it comes. And it's a terrible thing that he sees. Look, look at what it says in verse 2. A stern vision is told to me. A harsh vision. This is, this is something that's hard to take. And he begins it. A stern vision is told to me. And then he says, the traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. That's a way to try to capture the alliteration that's in the Hebrew. The, the, the one who is a betrayer, what does the betrayer do? They betray. What does the destroyer do? They destroy. And they're always doing this. And this is talking about Babylon. It's bringing Babylon forth as a nation that's not trustworthy. They make their pacts. They make their alliances. They make their promises. But they do what they want to do because they're betrayers and destroyers this is a message for us today is it not even in the identification of babylon doing what babylon does as an evil nation there are nations there are people that do what they want to do yeah if you ever sit back and watch some of the discussions about peace that goes on for different countries and the people come back from the table after a week of spending all that jet fuel and going to gather and they come back with this with this um, treaty that peace is going to happen and you're thinking that side doesn't trust that side and that side doesn't trust that side and neither one of them are good for their word so what good does this do and for 48 hours, there's peace, and then somebody fires a shot, and then we're back to, back to where we were. So this is a wisdom and discernment thing. What makes a nation a betrayer and a destroyer primarily is that they're going against what God says. 
Now, if God raises them up to be a destroyer, that's his business. They would not be a betrayer if God does that. So this is lining out. This is a wicked nation, and the vision that's coming terrifies me. It is a stern vision. And then he says, he gives the other players in the battle, go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. So these two nations, we know that, they're, that they come together in the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, that, they're, that in 539, they're the ones who actually do overtake Babylon in 539. That Media is conquered by, by Cyrus in 550 BC. So we have real players that actually are involved in the fall of Babylon in 539. And I think that fits this passage more than anything else as the closest local expression of what's being talked about. And we'll get into that more as we, as we see how this develops and look at other passages of Scripture. But I also think it looks forward to every Babylon. Remember, as we looked at, at Revelation and we talked about Babylon and Babylon being the picture in Revelation of all the cities and peoples and all of the, all of the systems that are against God, this passage is quoted in Revelation twice to refer to that. So I think that's in our mind as well. So I don't want us to walk through this whole passage and think, well, that's all about back then. Because it's also talking about the God who never changes and how he deals with every Babylon. How he deals with every Babylon who stands in opposition to his will and his way. And look what he says. The end of verse 2. All the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. So there's been pain that Babylon has caused by their wickedness, by their betraying, by their destruction. And God says... I will bring it to an end. So again, we are firmly in the seat of God's sovereign power. This is God working. Isaiah's not just looking at something that's going to happen and trembling and saying, oh, I wish that wouldn't happen or I wonder why that's happened. He knows exactly why it's happened and that's what causes the fear or the the sickness and the inner pain that he feels over this that we see in verse three. Look there with me. Therefore, my loins are... Listen to how many ways he said this physically distresses me. Therefore, notice the therefore. God has just said, I will bring them to an end. Therefore, so God is doing this and me just seeing this vision, knowing what's going to happen. My loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. Isaiah said, I have longed for this. Isaiah longs for any enemy of God to be brought to their knees by the sovereign God. And he's seeing this picture of Babylon, a, a rising power in Isaiah's day, but one, one who will carry off um, the southern kingdom in, into captivity in not very many years from when this section of Isaiah is written. And so he sees that God is saying, this is going to be a nation I bring to their knees because they are the ones who will be in power. And he prays all those nations that are against God will be brought to their knees. And whatever he sees in this vision, he's saying, do that, Lord. And then the vision itself overwhelms him. Have you ever been there? Have you ever prayed for God to do something and when he did it, it caused you to be fearful? Not because you were fearful of him doing it, but you were fearful of his sovereign hand in the making because God uses everything. Damon brought this so clear to us before he read to us from Job. God uses even the sin of people to bring about his will. 
He brought about his will in the death of Christ, and it was the hands of sinful men, and yet it was his will that it be done. And if you've ever been in that situation where you pray, oh Lord, reveal this to this person. Oh Lord, let this person see this. Oh Lord, reveal your glory to them. Oh Lord, stop that sin from happening. And then he does it. And it brings you to your knees because of the way he does it. And you're tempted to think, oh Lord, I didn't mean like that. And yet God is sovereign and he does as he wills. This is what Isaiah is dealing with. And I would say that if you have not walked in that situation enough, you're not praying against evil enough because God does this. And this is where Isaiah says, I have prayed for the twilight, the ending, the night, the end of the road for Babylon. So then he turns his gaze to Babylon and describes them. There's some people that say this could be Judah here. So I don't think that's the case. Some people that say this would be normal before a battle. You'd feed all of your soldiers and then you would call them to prepare for battle. Now that could be, but it seems to me this is showing a lax um, group of soldiers. This is showing someone who is not aware that God is about to act in the way that he is. And so what do they do? They're preparing a table. They spread the rugs. They eat and drink. They're going about their lives. This is another reason I think that this is talking uh, with what's in the close focus is Babylon's destruction in 539. That's what I think is in, in view here. Keep your finger in Isaiah and turn over to Daniel chapter 5. You'll remember this. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read just a few verses. Beginning in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And then the very famous passage of the finger that writes on the wall in Daniel's interpretation of it, but I want you to turn to the end of the chapter. Verse 30. That very night... Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. On that very night, the very festivities of eating and drinking, abusing the vessels that were taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, he dies on that very night. And the Assyrians, I mean the, the Medo-Persians take over the Babylonians at that point. That's what I think these little verses back in Isaiah 21 are referencing, or at least they could be. And so Isaiah in verse 5, Isaiah in verse 5, he responds. I, I guess I've kind of lost my outline here. Michael, you usually keep up with me. Are you up with me? So we move from the judgment being announced to two contrasting responses to this judgment. First is Isaiah's anguish, which we just talked about. Second is Babylon is unaffected 
They're, they're not even realizing they're about to be destroyed, and they're going to be destroyed because they have spurned the one true God of the universe, and they don't even know it. Well, the fourth aspect of this oracle concerning Babylon, the judgment is accomplished. Look at the second half of verse 5. Isaiah calls to them to come out of this, this celebration. Arise, O princes, oil the shield, prepare for battle. Now, that could have a religious overtone to it. Uh, that word is usually, anoint is usually used in that way. It's only used two other times. Here and in 2 Samuel, talking about anointing a, a, sore, uh, a, a shield again. But it probably has to do with the idea this would have been preparation for battle. If it was a leather shield, it would have conditioned that shield, made it stronger, and also made it slick and slippery so that arrows might bounce off of it in the battle. So he's calling them, you are slumbering, but you need to be ready for battle. For, look at verse 6, thus says the Lord, thus the Lord said to me, so now the Lord is speaking to Isaiah, go set a watchman, let him announce what he sees, when he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. And some of your versions may say, he will see. And it could be that as well. But it's the Lord saying, set a watchman, because the Lord knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen. And when he sees these things, and it's interesting that the way these are described are exactly the way the Medo-Persian army is described in the annals of, of how they would come upon different nations. This kind of description of the way they rode horses in two by two, this would, and camels, and this fit their uh, descriptions of the historical documents that we have. So he says, go set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. He tells him what he will see, and he tells him to listen diligently, very diligently. Then, verse 8, he who, cried, he who saw cried out. So who are the, what are the players here? How is this working? God speaks to Isaiah. Is Isaiah the watchman? I think Isaiah could be the watchman. But He's telling Isaiah to appoint a watchman, and then Isaiah could also be listening to the conversation. So the watchman is appointed, and then the watchman speaks in verse 8. Whether it's Isaiah or someone else, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. In other words, I have not left, and I've not seen anything, but that's about to change. He's, he's showing the Lord, I've been diligent to the call, in verse 9, and behold, so take notice, look, behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he, and he answered, and who is the answering? This probably, I think, is the, is the riders that he sees coming, their message. That's what a watchman would have done often, is wait for messengers to come, bringing messages from the field of battle, bringing warnings that an army is approaching, bringing victory, the, the, victory uh, celebrations, um, um, blessed are the feet who bring good news, that kind of picture that you, Paul uses in Romans. So this seems to be the, the people who are coming that the watchmen have been waiting on, and this is what he answered. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. So this isn't just a fall of a nation, it's a fall of the gods who they trusted. This is constant in the Old Testament, isn't it? Remember Dagon? Dagon's set up in the Philistine tent. The Philistines come in and Dagon is laying down. 
They set him back up. The next day he comes laying down. Eventually arms are taken off and laid at the threshold. God is more powerful than these false idols. And these nations worshipped false gods when they put up these idols. It was even evident in Daniel chapter 5, was it not? They have these beautiful vessels taken out of the temple, and what do they worship? The gods of the silver, the gods of gold. So it's not only just the nation itself, but it is all their religious practices that have been shattered. And this is why some people would say this is God calling, but I don't think it's God saying this because the last phrase in verse 9 is, he has shattered to the ground. This is God's doing. And the recognition even is from those that are fleeing the front is that God has done this. And we know that historically this happens in 539 B.C. But we also know in Revelation chapter 14 and chapter 18, this verse, fallen, fallen is Babylon, is quoted there to talk about all of humanity that is against God as that that picture of, of revolving cycles in Revelation that we see, Babylon takes on the effect of being every nation or structure or group of people that is against God, and God deals with them, and this is the verse that's used there. That's why I think Isaiah's, the the intention of God through Isaiah is wider to talk to all Babylons, not just Judah in their day, not just Babylon in their fall, Even if it was a different fall, like the fall in uh, 689 B.C., even if it's something different, the idea is, listen, God does not change, and he will overcome all Babylons, all those nations who work out of their own power, their own wisdom, and they end up being their own destroyer, their own betrayer. God will overcome them. So the message is, it's not just don't be like them. It is don't trust in them. Don't live like they live. Don't put your faith and trust. Don't think their wisdom. Don't take their gods. Don't do anything because God is moving against them. And especially to Judah, Yahweh is your God. And all the nations around have some idea of that, which we'll see in just a moment. Well, the judgment's message is also to Judah. Remember, we said that all of these oracles are told in Judah's hearing. This is God's message to his people at a time where they are tempted to trust in other nations. And he says, Isaiah is speaking, oh, my threshed and winnowed one. In other words, you've been been put through the ringer. You you have been pressed. You've been taken in at this time. At the time that this will happen, they've been taken into captivity. What I have heard from Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. It should bring comfort to them. Any oppressors that are over my people will meet this doom. Any oppressors who are against me and oppress my people, I will deal with in my time. It's a message of encouragement to all of us. It's a message of encouragement to Judah. It's a message of encouragement for us, especially today. We are moving more and more and more with the church and God's people. We definitely see this in other countries in the world. We've just been spared from it. If you follow international mission work at all, you know that there are people that every day risk their lives, every day lose their lives because they just um, put their faith and trust verbally, publicly in Christ and Christ alone. But we haven't seen that, but we're moving more in that direction. But that shouldn't cause us fear. That should empower us. Because light is shown greatest against darkness. 
The darker the world gets, the brighter our message gets. The darker the world gets, the more they're following Satan, the more they're suppressing the truth of God, the brighter the gospel shines. And that gospel shines brighter both to the condemnation of those who continue in their wickedness and the offer of salvation to those who God is drawing unto himself. And we are the messengers. We are the Isaiahs. We are the prophets of the world who stand with the good news in the face of all of this craziness that's going on, knowing that God ordained every single vote in every single election and the results. Knowing that as he did that, he has America under judgment. I mean, there's no question about this. There's no question whether God is judging America when he gives the the collective conscience over to their own evil conscience. When, when the suppression of truth is such that we go from, we have a law that allows abortion, we get rid of that law, and now we have states all over the place that won't even vote for a law that says, give medical attention to a live baby who is aborted and still living. Amen. That is evil. We don't run away from that. We don't stand just screaming at it. We say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We keep pushing forward biblical commands and biblical lives through biblical families and biblical churches and we let God give the increase and we teach our children so that the next generation, if God does, if God does not pull back on his judgment, the next generation will look at a lot more like Babylon than we do. Will they be ready? Are we training them? Are we teaching them what it means to fear the Lord and fear the Lord only and to do that with great joy, not fear? This is our task. This is our joy to be able to do. And the darker it gets, the easier it gets for us. The easier it gets to stand in front of that evil. And if we die, we die. We'll be with Jesus. Hallelujah. Well, there's a couple more oracles here, and I think they are tied Beginning in verse 11. The oracle concerning Duma. Maybe your your version says Edom. I know at least one, maybe two uh, regular versions say Edom. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament says Edom. But I think Duma is right. Now, Some people argue that Duma is a place, and it is. It's an oasis in northern Arabia at the time that this would have been written. And there are people that argue that that is the place being talked about. But I think this is another one of those um, metaphorical views for us so that we can see a very simple oracle stretch as the purposes of God throughout history. So that Duma is just a little bit of a change of the word Edom, just a letter change in the Hebrew. And... So this oracle concerning Duma, we know it is Edom because one is calling to me from Seir. Now, that's a mountain range in Edom. It is also the way Edom was referred to, the land of Seir, when Esau was sent out into it. So it's synonymous with Edom. So I think we are talking about Edom, but I think the Duma is a, a, a reference to judgment and death because Duma actually means silent and in Psalm 94:17 and Psalm 115:17 it refers to the land of silence and it's referring to death. And I think that whole picture of this word is what's in front of us here. It's referring to judgment and we have those from all throughout scripture we see the day and the night contrasted of the righteous and the unrighteous of of living and dying. 
And I think that's what's happening here. I think it makes sense for us to see this. One is calling to me from Seir, that is Edom, and the call is, watchmen, what time of the night? And it's repeated, what time of the night? And what, it's, what this phrase is meaning is, how much more night is there? And I know you can relate to this. Have you ever had this where you're up late at night and you can't sleep, either because you're full of pain or you're, you can't get something off of your mind? And all you're longing for is the day to come so that the next day starts. That's the kind of passion that's here. But the night for them, this is danger. This is fear. This is, we understand there are things going on. And notice that this, the watchman in this oracle to Duma seems to be Isaiah. And so Edom comes to Judah, to Jerusalem, to ask the question about how long judgment will go. I don't think that's, that's accidental here. That even in the sin of some of these other nations, they know where to go. Remember Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 4, where we talk about all the nations streaming in to hear. This is an example of that. They're streaming in to ask. And the answer comes, the watchman says, Morning comes and also the night. So yes, morning's coming, but night will come again. Now, this isn't just somebody with insomnia who's saying, when can I get up? And the, and the watchman's saying, well, you can get up, but you're going to go back to bed and deal with it again. This is a wider picture of judgment. This is a wider picture of the judgment is upon us. When will it be released? It will be released, but it's going to come again. And then he says it even more clearly in his message, the watchman, if you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. Literally, return and come. If you will inquire, come back and really inquire. You're asking the question, but are you asking the question with the right heart? Are you asking the question that is, how do I avoid the judgment? Or are you asking the question of just when the judgment is going to stop? And I think what the watchman is saying, come back and ask the right question. You go away and come back. And you see the idea of repentance in there, right? Turning away and coming back to the place where God dwells, where wisdom dwells. That is in Jerusalem. That's where God dwells. And that's the picture that's being brought to us here. Now, Edom is one who even um, the southern kingdom prays in the Psalms that they would get their due. Turn to Psalm 137. We're going to read the, the whole psalm. Our focus is in the last part of it, but we're going to read the whole psalm. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. So this is the time of the exile. When we remembered Zion. Now for, for an Israelite, being away from Jerusalem is being away from the place of worship. It's being away from the pre presence of God where God promises to dwell with his people and yet God has sent them into exile. So there they sat down and wept when they remembered Zion. Verse 2. On the willows there we hung up our lyres for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing Yahweh's song in a foreign land? So they're being asked to sing songs, and their songs would all be of the victorious God that they served, and yet they were in captivity, and they know they're being taunted. But they still remember, verse 5, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. That is to, to play the harps and the lyres. 
let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now, it's not just the city. It's the God who's in the city. Now, listen, verse 7. Remember, O Yahweh, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. So they're remembering that the Edomites sat back and watched the destruction by the Babylonians, and they're saying, remember them when you come against Babylon. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Come, Lord Jesus, and do your bidding. Come and do your will. And the Israelites would say, and don't forget the Edomites who sat back and glorified in the destruction of your people. And in the process, they defamed you. So the Edomites coming back and saying, how long does judgment happen? It's a picture of what God does throughout history. Now, let me tell you, when I started thinking about the Edomites and how does this work out through history, do you know who uh, the, the most prominent family in the New Testament, in the local religious establishment, the Herod, the Herod dynasty? Those are Edomites. They're Edomians. And all along, the dawn has come on them because the dawn is Jesus Christ himself, is it not? When Christ comes and does his work and is resurrected and sits on his, in his right hand, that is the sun rising. That is the time where the sun comes before, S-U-N, comes before in the form of sun, S-O-N, doing the Father's bidding and offering salvation to Jew and Gentile, to everyone who will repent and believe. But you have to come before Jesus, the, the light of the world, and you have to set aside your own righteousness. You have to repent of your sins and you have to come to Christ on his terms. And yet over and over and over, the Herodian dynasty did not do that. Just think about King Herod the Great. He was the one that killed all the male children in Jerusalem or around, around Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. He was so afraid of a king rising up that would be king of the Jews instead of him that he had every male child under two killed. That's a Herodian. That's an Edomite. Has a chance. And was told by the wise men who were seeking this one, has a chance to see the sun and bow before it and to truly inquire, and he does not. Herod Archelaus is a son. He follows him. And if you remember, Herod, Herod the Great, or Herod the First, known as Herod the Great, he was a wicked guy as well. He, he murdered at least one of his five wives as, as, as well as some of his children because they were a threat to him. So as wicked as he was, when his son took over, Archelaus, Archelaus was feared even more than him, to be more wicked. In fact, he was feared so much that the emperor took him out of his seat and, and sent him into exile within two years because it was instability in that area. And yet when Joseph is told by the angel, go back to Israel because those who want, those who, those who want your death are now dead, when, he, when Joseph finds out that Archelaus is now ruling, an angel comes to him and he of his own volition turns and goes to Bethlehem in Nazareth. Because Archelaus is so wicked. That's another Herodian. Herod Antipas, known as Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch. He also saw the light of morning. Remember, he was the one when Jesus is brought to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. And Herod sends him back to Pilate. And that's where he's set off to his crucifixion. And he's like, well, I've always wanted to meet this guy. I want to see some of his miracles. 
That's the way he acted accordingly. But neither Pilate nor Herod can find anything wrong with them, but they do not have the backbone to stand up for that. They're doing what's politically expedient. And in the midst of that, Herod and Pilate, who were former enemies, the scripture says, on that very day became friends. Another Herodian, the light dawn, standing right in front of him. And yet the night still comes. Herod Agrippa I, Herod the Great's grandson, had James, the brother of Jesus, killed. Then he imprisoned Peter. And on the same day that the angel frees Peter miraculously from prison, King Agrippa I, he has a, a, an envoy come from Tyre and Sidon, and they want to make peace with him because they need his food. So they're trying to butter him up. And so he puts on all his robes and gives a speech. And when he finished giving that speech, all the people said, The voice of God and not a man. All they want is food, so they're buttering him up. And he took that praise. And when he took that praise, God killed him. And he was eaten by worms right then. One who saw the light of Christ imprisoned his people and meets his own judgment. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And finally, Herod the Great's great-grandson, Herod Agrippa II. Emperor Claudius gave him the rule over the temple and appointing the high priest. And when Paul was imprisoned and he appealed to Caesar, the last person he saw before he took off to Rome was King Agrippa, before him and his sister Bernice. And here's what he said. After giving a long defense that he's not guilty, that all he's doing is preaching the God of the Old Testament, after that long defense, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And, and what he's trying to say of that, you've almost persuaded me, but you've only had a short time. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these changed. So when we're back in Isaiah chapter 21, and we see this phrase, Morning comes and also the night. We see it happening over and over and over, right demonstrated in front of us all through the New Testament to Edom itself and the descendants. This is the way God works throughout history for everyone. God in his patience lets us live and breathe without repenting before him and putting our faith and trust in his son. Now, he doesn't do that forever. But he does that so that we might repent. And that's the language that's used in verse 12 of Isaiah 21. Go and come back. Turn. Turn away from where you are and come back. And that's what God puts before us all the time. The sun has risen. Christ has come. All the Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled. We look back and we see the cross. We see it fulfilling all of the Old Testament promises, all of what the prophets said. And the charge to us is always, will you repent of your sin and believe on this Christ? Because what this Christ did was come and he lived a perfect life and died and is raised again and is seated at the right hand of the Father as evidence of the Father's pleasure. And he holds that out to every man and says, will you repent or will you trust in your own righteousness? Will you trust in someone or something else other than Christ himself for your salvation? And that charge is for all of us. It's for us here today as well. 
If you're outside of Christ today, that is the call to you. No matter what historical setting we are, no matter how fanciful we look at this, these prophecies, these oracles, the question before you is Christ has come. The dawn has come. Your night is coming if you are not in Christ. Your night is coming. That judgment will be there. And one day the dawn will not come and you will have no time left. So today is the day to repent, to turn away from your sins, to hear that call from Christ and put your faith and trust in him so that you might never see judgment, so that Christ has suffered that for you. Will you do that today or will you walk away and hope there's another morning? Well, we have another oracle, don't we? The oracle concerning Arabia. This one, again, the details are debated of who's doing what where, but the meaning of it is not. The oracle concerning Arabia. Now, hopefully, the ESV doesn't do this, but hopefully yours has a different word than concerning there, like the oracle against or the oracle on or the oracle to um, Arabia. Because of all these oracles, all ten oracles, there isn't a preposition in any of the other titles. They're all constructed grammatically where we know there's an oracle and then there's, a, there's a, 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 a nation name. So we know that the oracle's about them just because of the way it's grammatically constructed. This one has a preposition. And so this seems a little bit stronger. And maybe it is because it's over a whole group of nations and nation states that, that is referred to here as Arabia. And look at what it says. First, Dedan flees the sword and hides... And second, Tima brings Dedan water and food. Now, this could be looked at two different ways, and we'll bring them both, and uh, the, the end result is the same. In the thickets in Arabia, you will lodge, O caravans of Dedanites. So these Dedanites are descendants of Abraham by Keturah, his second wife. They're desert dwellers, and they're traders. Okay, so they're, they're, they're out in the desert, they're, they're uh, sojourners, and they're, they're expert in trading skills. Verse 14, to meet thirsty, to, to the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tema. So is it the Dedanites and the Temanites who are both bringing water and bread to some unnamed army or unnamed uh, group of refugees that are fleeing? Or is the, the D, or are the Dedanites the ones that are hiding? They, they're fleeing and they're hiding in the thickets and the Temanites are to bring water and food to them. Both of them are Arabian people groups. So which one it is, I'm not sure. It seems in the text that the Dedanites, Dedanites are hiding and the Temanites are to bring them water. Now, to have Tema mentioned here is really interesting in how these oracles click to, fit together because Tema is the place where uh, Nabonidus, uh, Babylon's last king, spent 10 years of his life right in Tema. And guess which son he left on the throne while he was in Tema? Belshazzar, who we just met in Daniel chapter 5. So I think these oracles are all tied together. The Babylonians are being overcome, and there are refugees fleeing. And whether the Dedanites and the Temanites are bringing them food and water, or the Dedanites are fleeing from that, I'm not really sure which, but here's what I do know. The food and water is being brought to the refugees. Look at verse 15. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. 
So they are fleeing. Whoever needs this food and water, you're to go meet their needs because they're fleeing from, I think, the same battle, the overflow of the, the overthrow of the Babylonians we've been looking at since the beginning of the chapter. And then we have another four in verse 16. And this is where we see Kedar, which is another Persian uh, people group. For thus says the Lord to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, and we've already seen that phrase in Isaiah, right? It's meaning... A hired worker is not working anything more than what they're hired. And if they're hired a year, when a year's done, they're gone. So this is going to happen within this year. The, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. So Kedar, the uh, Ishmael's second son, wealthy, powerful tribe in North Arabia, um, east of the Jordan River. So they have wealth, they have power. This is not an insignificant tribe of people. And yet God is sweeping through Persia because those who are trusting in their own wealth and their own abilities, those who are not trusting in Yahweh, they are going to meet their end the same way, even as God is dealing with Babylon. And look what he says about them. The glory will come to an end and the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedars will be few. That's the same kind of language you've heard over and over and over, isn't it? That the once great army will be few. All their weapons, there will be few. All their wealth, not much left. All the agricultural settings that they have, not much left. That's the same language over and over and over again. But the most important phrase in all of this closes this, this verse, doesn't it? For Yahweh, the God of Israel, has spoken. Now, if he has spoken, what he has spoken will come to pass because he is Yahweh, the God of Israel. His character doesn't change. When he speaks, it is something to be trusted. Now, this is why for us, when we have the Bible in front of us, this is, this is God speaking. Yes, we're going to disagree on some of the interpretations of it, but this is God's word. And we're looking at it saying, God, what do you have to say to us through this word? And how do we know what you, what you have to say to us? Because we can look at the word and see in context what you said to the people you wrote it to. And then we can figure out how it's supposed to apply to us. And then we say, give us the wisdom and the strength to obey it, even walking through Babylon. To remember that we are trusting you, and so we are not undone by a wicked election or election that, that elects people and thoughts that are wicked against your word. We're not undone by that. You're in charge of that. So we do our civic duty, and we vote. If God calls us to run for office, run for office, because we of all people are the ones who, could, who should be able to um, outstand the scrutiny of a media trying to bring us down from past yucky things and skeletons in our closets, right? We of all people are the people who can do that. That's why we teach our children this, so that when they grow up, if God's raising them up to be a governor or a president or a, or a county commissioner, there's nothing in their life that anybody could come and hold against them because they have been living their life to the glory of God because we have his word. And the language all through the New Testament reflects this. I want you to turn to one more place. We're not coming back to Isaiah, but I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This language of night and day, the sun rising and the night coming, the judgment approaching, but living in the light. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the ancestors, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the, to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, that's the word to us today. Using that metaphor of light and dark in two or three different ways in this one passage, we're told to be on guard because Christ is coming back. And Christ has come once and he's died for us so that we live in this world, that we have, we have hope because whether we're awake or when Jesus comes, whether we're sleeping, physically sleeping or awake, or even the way the New Testament uses that if we're dead or alive, when he comes back, we are his because he's come once. And the first time he came to redeem us and those of us who have put our faith and trust in him because God has worked that in our heart in regeneration. We are the ones that look and respond to him and there is no wrath for us because it's already been placed on Christ who died for us. So these are our marching orders. Even after election like this, and most of you have lived long enough to know that the next election could be even worse. But God never changes He's just as glorious. He has the same plan, and the light shines even brighter against that darkness. He's advancing his kingdom. Will we work in that direction, or will we stand and just scream at the darkness without the gospel? Father, we are grateful for your constant care for us. Even these hard messages of Isaiah, Father, we are grateful that you have given them to us as things that are applicable to us in our day, to remind us that you are sovereign, that no matter what happens, no matter what goes on around us, we have a mission because you have called us out of darkness into light and you have called us and placed us on a mission to give the message of your son. You have placed us on a mission to live according to your lordship even when the world around us denies your existence, let alone your kingship and your rule. So Father, we ask you to strengthen us Draw us unto yourself in such a way that we understand that our mission is emboldened because the, the work has been done by Christ. And that no matter what is going on, your people, under your rule, are advancing your kingdom according to your plan. So we are grateful for this and to be a part of it. In Jesus' name, amen.